This is Live Well Talk on Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, or PTSD. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at UMA Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital. PTSD is a mental disorder that some people develop after they experience or see a traumatic event, often associated with sexual abuse, trauma, an auto accident, or loss of a loved one. Certainly, though, our current situation with the pandemic can also trigger uh, such a disorder. Joining us today is Teresa Graham Minert, Abbey Mental Health Associate Executive Director. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, I think the first thing to talk about, obviously, what is PTSD, but it does not have to be this catastrophic event to mm-hmm. have post-traumatic stress, correct? I mean, it could be something that seems, other people might say, oh, that's benign. I can't mm-hmm. believe that upset you. But that to that person, it was really, so, what, what, I mean, what, sure. what, what, please tell us what PTSD is. So tr- how trauma impacts people happens on a continuum. And so to your point, there are some people who experience something and to them, that's a, that's a terrible event, but they move forward. And for other people, it's catastrophic um, and has long-lived uh, effects. Post-traumatic stress disorder um, actually only impacts about 3.5% of the population. But our population has w- far more people that are impacted by trauma. And so even though an individual doesn't meet all the medical criteria for that particular illness, doesn't mean that they aren't impacted in very significant ways by the trauma that they've experienced. So specific to PTSD, yes, the, the event that they've either experienced or witnessed um, usually has a high degree of danger um, and someone's life is threatened. But if an, if an individual has a traumatic event that doesn't meet that full criteria, they can still be impacted by other forms of trauma. Okay. Basically, you do not have to be a soldier in Iraq or Afghanistan Absolutely not. PTSD. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm trying to say, that it's common. You mentioned the percentage is 3%, mm-hmm. 3.5%. But how often do people self-medicate with either alcohol or uh, perhaps perhaps get put on an antidepressant when mm-hmm. they're really not depression, it's really PTSD? How often do you see that in your practice? I see that quite a bit. Um, I see that with some populations more than others. Um, frankly, I see that more with men than I do women, but not exclusive. We know that women are at higher risk for post-traumatic stress disorder than men, um, but we know that our culture is... Um, kinder to women as victims than they than they are to men. So um, certainly, I do work with people and see people whose uh, trauma is being masked by substance abuse or um, depression or um, divorce, other kinds of relationship issues. And it isn't until you really get in there and dig around a little bit that you find out that this really bad thing happened to them. So how, how do you make the diagnosis? Is it clinical? You it sit is. down and interview it someone. Is. Um, it is a part of an interview. Um, there is a standard, there are some standard things that we look for. Um, so one is the event. An individual has had an event um, that there was some level of danger involved. And following that event, um, at least within the first six months, the individual um, has maybe a shorter uh, startle reflex, they're having trouble sleeping, they're having um, intrusive thoughts or flashbacks, which are memories on steroids, um, where an individual actually can lose their sense of self. Um, Oftentimes relationships are impacted, uh, work, um, home life. And and if if an individual meets enough of those criteria, then they they are diagnosed with PTSD. And treatment is, is, define treatment for us and how this works. Treatment is a variety of things. Um, Certainly medications can help with the anxiety part of it or the depression part of it, Um, but therapy is often at the core. Um, depending on the individual's particular symptoms. If a, if a person has 
very specific flashbacks or it was a very specific event. There's something called EMDR, which is a specific um, eye movement um, that in combination with other therapy can be effective in decreasing the intensity of the memories. Um, biofeedback, yoga, um, relaxation, finding ways for people to catch themselves before they um, fall completely into a memory. Um, individuals who participate, frankly, in yoga have decreased anxiety overall, bringing somebody's heart rate down, their respiration down, so that they feel in control. So as a dog person, yeah. how does pet therapy work? I mean, I know my dog puts, my dogs, we have two, yeah. puts me in a great mood. Yeah. I mean, I just, I can't wait to see him at the end of the day. And I hate leaving them in the morning. Mm -hmm. So how does pet therapy work? Sure. This is for my own knowledge. Absolutely. So having a pet at home that you have a really great relationship with isn't necessarily pet therapy, but there is a lot of good research that indicates that uh, humans who are claimed by pets um, have uh, lower rates of anxiety and depression than people who don't. We know that people who've had catastrophic illnesses like heart attacks, strokes, that interaction with animals, especially their own animal, can help uh, recuperation and recovery. Um, part of it is tactile. Petting something kind of rhythmically Makes sense. Yeah. Is, is not unlike yoga. Deep breathing, breathe out. You're, you're paying attention to something other than yourself, kind of getting outside yourself, and just that reciprocal, unconditional regard. Your dog loves you, no matter how much, yeah, yeah. How much you screwed up, um, how many mistakes you made, whether or not you took the trash out, that your dog loves you, and we get that back in spades. Yeah. yeah, the old joke, you know, lock your wife and your dog in the trunk of the car and see who's happy to see you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's so true. You know, I think one of the hard things about the pandemic and the, and the shutdown. So you have the fear of the virus to mm -hmm. begin with. You have the pandemic and the shutdown. You know, the people that are making the decisions to keep this, to keep the shutdown in place mm -hmm. or curtailment and reopen are all people that are salaried and their jobs aren't threatened, right? Fair enough. So you have, can you imagine the helplessness that, you know, the factory worker feels? Because, you know, it's sure it's easy for the governor, and I'm not okay. picking on Governor Reynolds by any measure, but it's mm -hmm. easy for a political leader to say, we're going to shut down for six weeks. Mm -hmm. They still get paid, yeah. you know, and would it roles reverse? Would they say, well, maybe we can open at four, gosh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, I just can't imagine the helplessness that people, Absolutely. you know, I, I'm fortunate that, you know, my salary kept coming mm -hmm. in. Uh, we all took pay cuts, you know, mm -hmm. to help make pay the bills, of course, but it's still coming in, Absolutely. you know, and, or if it was delayed, I knew it'd be delayed and mm -hmm. would eventually come in, right? Mm -hmm. But there's other people are out there and, you know, this, this could be catastrophic for them. Absolutely. Well, small business owners, people who live paycheck to paycheck, they don't know for sure that the job will be there. If you or I take some time off, we've been in our positions long enough, we've got some paid leave, we're confident that the position will be there. And so we do have a fair number of people who aren't in that position and don't know when it is going to come up. And certainly if an individual's life stress increases substantially and they've had a traumatic experience in the past, it can exacerbate those symptoms again. And you can see increased problem thoughts, increased intrusive memories, problems, uh, increased urges for alcohol and drugs. So uh, for people who have a history of trauma, um, this particular stress can be a problematic. Or if they, I can imagine that they were coping with their PTSD by having a good job and a mm -hmm. support system. Now we just took that away from Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Put They're, them alone in their house. Yeah. You know? I'm also hearing from a fair number of caregivers, um, people who typically, maybe they have a loved one who's disabled or an aging couple where one of them needs to go into the hospital or needs to go to a nursing facility 
and they're accustomed to being on the unit with them. They're accustomed to being able to visit. And so now they aren't, um, obviously, for good reason. We, we don't want additional people infected, um, and we don't want widespread COVID as a result. But that, that connectedness, those relationships, really healing is a lot about those relationships. And so when we interfere with that, that can be pro- that's very scary. Unequivocally, in the command center for during the height of the pandemic, the toughest decision was to restrict visitors. Yeah. I think that generated the most discussion amongst the leaders to how should we do this or mm-hmm. can we do this? And just th- th- they thought through it so many consequences. That, that followed by the HR issues mm-hmm. for people, you know, because they knew people would possibly be in furloughed and they want to make sure they made the right decision. But visitor restriction, mm-hmm. that was something that really people struggle with because, we, you know, that's... Yeah. We just don't want to be alone, no, you know, we particularly don't. when they're ill. And... and for some people, their partner, their caregiver is who communicates effectively to the healthcare providers. If they've got um, an illness that makes communication problematic or um, maybe they don't have very good judgment when they're sick and obviously they're in the hospital or they're in a nursing home because they're sick. And so, you know, caregivers worry if I'm not there to give that information, how will that happen? And those are tough decisions to make and tough decisions to live with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been in practice over 20, 20 years, 22, I guess. You always explain to the wife what's going mm-hmm. on because you don't want to just tell the husband even on your round, say, hey, tell your wife this is the plan. Here's what we're going to do because he'll totally get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, what, can I go call your wife? You know, mm-hmm. and, then, and then the real boss, at least yeah. that's the way it is in my household. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we talked on our earlier uh, podcast about how this, this, the, the kids that are graduating mm-hmm. high school, um, that they were born with 9-11, and then they graduate with the pandemic, you know, and they've had to grow up in between that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's some added, I think, some added stress. Absolutely. You know, that it's been turmoil the whole time. But how does someone get the resources that they need? Absolutely. And that's a very good point. Oftentimes, people get help because somebody that loves them says, I think you need some help. Um, we occasionally know that about ourselves, but if you're afraid, if you are trying to manage the best that you can and you just think, you know, you don't want to necessarily disclose this really terrible thing that happened to you because that means you've got to explain it to someone else and you're trying, you're trying your damnedest not to think about it. Oftentimes it's the people that love us that say, let's go get some help. Um, oftentimes people will see their primary care provider first. When it comes to mental health, having a good relationship with a primary care provider can't be overstated. That's the person who has seen you through a variety of different difficulties. You have a relationship with them. And so to be able to go to them and say, I'm not sleeping well, and I think I'm not sleeping well because of this, that, or the other, um, our primary care providers are, are really the frontline mental health um, providers in our healthcare system. But sometimes it's religious leaders, pastors, or lay ministers. But eventually getting to a skilled clinician, somebody who's accustomed to supporting and helping people with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, as a mental health professional is important. And, and how would they contact the resources locally? So um, at the Abbey Center, um, someone can call or walk in. Um, our phone number is 319-398-3562. In addition, um, there are, are a number of counselors, both from Unity Point and the Abbey Center, um, who are trained and skilled in helping people with trauma. Well, this is really great information. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this. Again, that was Teresa Graham Minert, Associate Executive Director at Abbey Mental Health. For more information, visit unipoint.org slash Abbey Health, A-B-B-E-H-E-A-L-T-H.
If you have a topic you'd like to suggest for our Live Well Talk on podcast, shoot us an email at stlukecr at unipoint.org, and we encourage you to tell your family, friends, neighbors about our podcast. Until next time, be well.